I was told the preacher had to get his own pulpit, so I'm glad that wasn't heavy because it looked a lot worse than uh, it was right there. Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you all. And uh, just to introduce myself, I'm Dave Hewlett. I know a few of you out there. Uh, My wife and I have the delight of being here this morning, seeing a few familiar faces. And I bring greetings from a church that we are a part of in Santa Barbara, California. It's Calvary Baptist. I think you probably recognize that name from Michael Boy's preaching, I think two weeks ago, who ministered up here for some time. And I actually have this strange connection uh, going back, I think, a little a while ago, 20-some years, maybe 22 years, when I was first an intern here uh, under Michael's direction, but I got to hang out with a guy named Kevin Bosler for the most part. And uh, if you don't know this already, I happen to have, I think it's the privilege of being Kevin's brother-in-law. Uh, so, no, it really is. Uh, I just got to give him a big hug this morning. He's recovering well, and he sends his greetings. I know he's anxious to see you all as soon as he's able. Uh, so it's a sober occasion that I, that I get the opportunity and the privilege to preach this morning, uh, but it's also just a, a delight uh, to be back with church family and uh, going back a few years here. My, my wife and I are here also in um, 2002 to 2004. We have some great youth group memories from that time, and since then we uh, have moved down to Santa Clarita and now over to Santa Barbara. And my wife still teaches at Master's, and uh, we recognize a few faces from there, and it was always a delight to uh, see um, those who have either moved up here from that area or always uh, sending more and more youth down to the Master's University. So it's, a, it's just a great uh, joy to be with you this morning. I guess Michael already cracked a joke about the mosaic. Uh, is that too soon around here? I, we're, maybe, maybe not. I guess... Um, Jeff Lamont said there's a few, uh, a few relics around uh, left over from the mosaic. So weren't they going to make those into like, uh, like couple coasters. coasters and, you know, I think it's going to go on sale uh, in the next, <laughs> next couple of weeks. Anyway, well, it's, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a delight to be here and uh, to be with you as church family. I'm never quite sure if I'm supposed to be over here or, or just get right behind this thing and get comfortable. So um, I have options anyway. Well, I want to start with an introduction this morning to, to go actually to the second book of Chronicles. No, it's not your average introduction, but will you turn to second Chronicles? I'm not sure which page of the Bible that is for you, but I do know it's after first Chronicles, that, if that helps you. Um, no, it's, it's after first and Kings, First, Second Chronicles, it's a few books before the Psalms. And I want to turn to the 20th chapter of Second Chronicles to begin this morning as, as we think of what it means to trust God under increasing pressure in the days we live in. I want to direct this message particularly to the men this morning who are here, uh, to the fathers, to the grandfathers, to those who are simply men in a society where the pressure is ever-increasing as you get older, but also as the culture changes around us and exposes, you could say, biblical manhood more and more. I think it's important to know where to run to as a man, whom to trust, and how to trust in God uh, under increasing pressure. So I want to start in 2 Chronicles 
chapter 20, and begin with me in verse 5. We have Jehoshaphat, who is a king of Israel, and he is... um, the, the whole country is being attacked by tribes from the east, uh, enemies that Israel has already defeated upon coming into the land. And Jehoshaphat sees these people coming, a whole horde from the east, and they're about ready to attack Jerusalem, and he hears about it, and he knows these odds are too great for him. He knows this is over his head. And look what he does here in Second Chronicles 20, verse 5, it says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Just stop there for a minute. He goes on to and continues to describe back to God in his prayer, saying, God, you did all of this. This is our history. You've pushed people out of the way so that we could be here. And now you, you're just going to allow this whole group from the east to come and attack us and push us back out of the land. Go down to verse 12. Still praying here. He says, O oh, our God. Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then a prophet arises. God blesses the the prayer with, his name is Jehaziel. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. Look down in verse 15. He said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is yours, is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. He just gives them exact GPS coordinates of where this enemy is going to be. Look look at verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning, and they go out, look down at the end of verse 20. Jehoshaphat says to them, Believe in the Lord your God. And you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And they decide to sing and give thanks. Right in the middle of the, right right before the battle, the congregation is led to sing. And it says in verse 22, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. And then it concludes in verse 23. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy 
one another. What an interesting and somewhat crazy passage where you have God's people being surrounded by enemies and yet instead of trusting in themselves, their leader, Jehoshaphat, their king, turns to the, turns to the Lord, goes to the ground, begs the Lord and says, Lord, we need you. This is your name at stake here. And he delivers them from such destruction that was clearly imminent. Will you flip over to Psalm 27 where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want to ask you this morning as we begin, especially to the men, of where we're most often going. Where do we go when the pressure is on? And where have we gone, maybe even in the last year, when the pressure has increased? Think about yourself for a minute. Where do you, where do you naturally go when the pressure turns up? What do you lean on? What are the crutches? What are the supports that you stand upon that base your confidence, which you base your confidence in? And I want to look this morning at Psalm 27 because it gives us uh, really a good instruction and a, 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 a roadmap to know how we might put our confidence in the Lord, how we might trust in the Lord under the increasing pressure that we are in. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 27. It says, David's writing this psalm, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Let's pause there for a minute and look at the first thing David decides to do, and that is he confidently confesses. He confidently confesses that the Lord is, look, look down at it in verse 1, the Lord is my light, And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Notice the present tense verb there. The Lord currently is. The Lord presently is my light and my salvation. Uh, Yes, he will be after, and he has been before. But David is noticing here that in the middle of adversity, the Lord currently is his light, meaning that he brings light He dispels darkness. He can look to him for guidance. But it's more than that. He says, the Lord is my light. Not just the Lord gives me light on my situation, but the Lord himself is my light. And he also says, he's my salvation or my deliverer, my savior. The end of verse one says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life or refuge. And some of you who have traveled to Israel will know there, was, there were parts of Israel in the wilderness that David fled to to get away from a lot of his enemies, namely Saul. He, would, he was running from Saul in this wilderness. And at times he would re- retreat to this refuge that would protect him and he would be up high upon a rock or in a cave, someplace that Saul could never find him. 
But that is not what ultimately David trusted in. It was the Lord himself when he was running to these places. Now I think about that. Don't, a lot goes wrong if the Lord, think about that for a second. If the Lord is not my light and my salvation. What happens when the Lord isn't bringing the light to my darkness? What happens when the Lord is not the stronghold? Perhaps I'm the stronghold. Perhaps something else is the stronghold. A lot goes wrong really quick out of the gates, right? When I'm leaning on anything other than the Lord himself. I want you to notice how much trouble David experiences, not only in this psalm, but really throughout his life. There might have been a few respites for David here and there, but, but for the most part, his life, ever since he was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, trouble began, didn't it? Do you remember that? He was probably 17, 18, 19 when he was anointed to be king over Israel, and that's when all the trouble began. He had, you could even say, perhaps Goliath, this defeat of Goliath, was in some ways the highlight of David's career. And remember, as soon as he killed Goliath, Saul became jealous. And that jealousy grew into bitterness, and he was on the run from Saul. So he's anointed king, and then he has to run for probably up to 20 years that he runs from his enemy Saul. David's on the run. He describes verse 2 as, when evildoers assail me, listen to these very intense words, to eat up my flesh, like, almost like animals to consume me is the idea there. My adversaries, my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Notice verse 3, though an army encamp against me, uh, again he says, though war arise against me, down in verse 5, he says, in the day of trouble. Then in verse 6, he, he says, his enemies. And then I, I go down in verse 12. He says enemies again in verse 11. But then he talks about his, he has adversaries and false witnesses who have risen against me and they breathe out violence. This whole psalm is, is think about, just don't gloss over those words. It's like, oh yeah, that's a nice like, part of the psalm and let's keep moving. But oh, if, if an army is encamped against me, like I'm the object of what that army wants. It's not something maybe even greater than the king himself. It, it could be territory. It could be resources. It, it, who knows what it could be? It could be revenge. But no, in this situation, David is the very target <laughs> of why the war has come against him. And even in that moment, he says, my heart shall not fear. Powerful words. I want to ask uh, you, especially men this morning, if you've grappled with fear. I think we all have faced something that causes us to jump or to quiver or to second guess. And it's probably different for every single one of us in the room, but there's probably some themes out there that go with being a man. I think about what fear is. What, is, what does it mean to actually fear something? In Isaiah 8, the Lord talks through the prophet Isaiah saying that God himself shall be your fear. And he says to fear the Lord back in the 
first five books of the Old Testament, and that was often a theme for Israel to be pursuing. But what does it mean when I fear something? What it really describes is that I'm giving weight or I'm giving some kind of glory, some kind of uh, maybe even a sense honor to that thing or that object, that person, that situation, that is the, the ultimate in my life. If you put it on scales, that would always weigh down whatever else is compared to the other side. And that's the idea here. What I fear really holds the most weight in my life. I think fear, it's the, in a sense, the root of many fears because it's the, it's the root of distraction. It takes your gaze, it takes your focus away from God and says, look over here, dwell on this, grind on this for a while, figure this out yourself. Don't you need to worry about that? Oh, you're worrying about that, but you got to bounce back over this. It's like spinning plates and you just, you can't, you, you can't keep up. And what it d- begins to do, fear, what it does is it fractures the mind and it fractures the heart. It, it fractures your thinking that is supposed to be focused on God being our stronghold, our light, our salvation. And what it does is it shakes us and says, you will think of this. You will fear me, is what fear does when whatever that object might be. Perhaps it's a current circumstance you're facing. Perhaps it's something you are fearful of facing but haven't faced yet. Whatever it is, it's, it's what grabs your attention. It's what takes your gaze. It's what we worship. But look at what he says to this in response to He says he won't fear. He says he won't be afraid. Even though an army is arising against me, I won't fear. I'll be confident. In myself? No. Back in the God of my salvation. That's why David can say, I'll be confident, is not because he's awesome. He doesn't say, I'll trust in the the new sword that was forged for me two weeks ago. I'll I'll trust in my bodyguard that's sleeping around me. I'll trust in maybe some new bowstring technology that's been given to my men, or maybe they won't find me. He says, I'll be confident because God is in this situation. And that's exactly what fear does, is fear shakes us and it says, what are you going to lean on? What are you going to seek as your place of solace, your place of refuge? And really what it's, it, 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 it pushes in on is, what will we be satisfied with? What will we be satisfied with? And that's the next point, and David turns to it in verses 4 through 6. Will you read 4 through 6 with me? It says, one thing. Okay, now follow his flow here. It, in, in, to me, it's, it seems jarring. It seems like there is no flow. But he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, 
and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Isn't that a jarring contrast? Here's what's happening here. In the middle of... Now, we don't know if he penned this in the middle of his circumstances. We're not sure if if he emptied his thoughts on paper as soon as he got back to perhaps Jerusalem. Uh, we're not, we don't even know. This could have been Hebron. He could have written this before he had moved cap, the capital to Jerusalem. This could have been before he was king. We really don't know where David penned this. But one thing that we do know is in the middle of his circumstance, I think this is absolutely stunning and crazy. He basically holds a mini worship service. Is what, think about that. An army is encamped against me, one thing. One thing I have asked of the Lord. Hang on a second, David. There's an army coming against you. There's all these circumstances you should be thinking about, you should be dwelling on, you should be problem solving. And David stops and he throws the e-brake on and says, no, one thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that's what I'm going to seek after that I may dwell in his presence. And the idea here is that he could get back into God's presence where his tabernacle was. That's the idea. You have to remember, put yourself in the place of an Old Testament saint where the Shekinah glory was a representation of God's very presence in his dwelling. It's not like we have today. And, and Jesus said, we're not, we're, those days are over. In John chapter 4, he told the woman at the well, The Father is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. But in Israel's day, in David's day, the idea was that all nations would see what's happening with the nation of Israel and flow to that, that center point of God's glory. And David being most likely, he's not in a, he's clearly not in a safe place. He's probably in a wilderness somewhere. He wants to be back in God's presence. He desires God himself not even getting out of the circumstance that he's in. I have a couple of slides. Psalm 119, Psalm 119.23, if we could put that up on this. Look at what the psalmist says here, a different psalmist, but again, a, a jarring contrast. Though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Think about that. If princes were sitting plotting against me, I'm not so sure my priority would be to meditate on the statutes of God. There's so much that, that in a sense, crushes the heart in that circumstance and says, you think about this, you fear this, you worry about this. But the psalmist says, even if princes are plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. In a Psalm, he says this several times throughout Psalm 119. But another in Psalm 119, verse 95, very similar to what David's going through. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Isn't that wild? The wicked are lying in wait to destroy me, but I'm going to consider your testimonies. This is the heart of David while he is perhaps not even at war. He's just running from an army that's after him. 
But he says, go back to verses 4 through 6 with me. Because he wants God's very presence, it doesn't just mean he wants to go hang out in the temple all the time. The temple wasn't even, at this point, built by his son Solomon. But he just uses all kinds of words of God's presence and where God would be. He wants to dwell with God, to be in his presence. And look at what he says he's confident in. God will hide him in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. He will lift me high. And because he's confident that God will come through for him, look what he says in verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And he, in a sense, he follows through with a vow of what he's already said, the one thing I'm seeking after. End of verse 6, he says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Kind of like what Caleb was telling the kids this morning. God's given us a reason to sing, and even in the middle of circumstances that are uh, more than a letdown, that would be an understatement, but our troubles, our enemies, our adversaries, difficulties that we're going through, what does David say he's going to do? I'm going to sacrifice, and part of that sacrifice is is just being thankful in the moment. Psalm 50 verse 14 talks about that. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, but David is, is, going, is saying, I'm going to do this when I get back to the capital. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Isn't that one of the most difficult things to do? And I want to really maybe step on a few toes here, men, is I, I just can attest. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? In the middle of perhaps something that's in your face and saying, you must consume your life with this, to stop and say, no, I need to sing praise. I need to have an attitude of thanksgiving in the middle of this. How about when the trouble is over, I will sing praise. How about when I get through this? How about when my life is comfortable and there's no more difficulty, perhaps then I will sing praise. It's easy to defer praise, to really kind of kick that can down the road and say, oh, I will, I will praise some, someday. But David is saying, I'm going to sing and make melody to the Lord, even in the middle of these circumstances, to stop and to do that, to stop. And he will sacrifice Here's what David is saying to round out this point. Even amidst all the competing voices amidst all the competing voices that say, look at me, listen to me, focus on this. David stops to say, the one thing I'm going to focus on is to seek after and to be with God him very self. Let's look at uh, the next thing he, he's been telling himself these things. But now he directs his prayer You see him humbly direct his prayer and really ask for God's heart in the next section. That's that's what's happening here in verses 7 through 12. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. So hide not your face from me, Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. 
Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have, ar- have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So even though David says, God, you're my stronghold, I want you more than anything, he then transitions now into saying, yes, but I'm still in it. I'm still in the middle of my circumstance. I'm still in a trial. I need God's help to navigate through this. He doesn't just sit down. He doesn't get, just give up. Now he requests, he's going to put his request out there for the Lord, but not just to say, God, get me out of this. God, help me do this one thing. He's actually, what I want us to notice here most of all is that he is asking for God's heart. Yes, his plans, his will, his direction, but he wants God's heart in the sense of, God, what would you do in this situation? Lead me through that in your wisdom as I depend on you. You know, it's really interesting that I think all of us, uh, men and women, we all expect certain things or we all have certain expectations, if you will, of different relationships, right? We all have expectations in relationships. And you're going to see David, uh, I guess, have his own expectations of the Lord in this relationship and what what God will always do for him. But I want to start at... One of a, an interesting verse here in this section, and that's verse 10. It says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Really interesting. We're not exactly sure what happened between David and his parents. I think some commentators are, are really merciful on David's parents, and they like, this can't be true, because David had great parents, right? And so this didn't happen. This is more of saying, if my parents were to bail on me, God would still take me in. It literally says, that's pretty difficult to get around because it says my father and my mother have forsaken me. Could be that they just couldn't help him in this circumstance. Maybe he's on the run from Saul. Maybe they are unwilling to stick their neck out for David, realizing the ramifications it could be for their, the rest of their household around Bethlehem. We don't know. But for whatever David felt or whatever he was going through, what he is saying here is that God, even when I can't depend on my closest relationships that I should depend on, what, what is God's presence or what is, what is God's role still? Verse 10, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will, you could say, still take me in. That's in verse 10. But look back up in verse, verses 8 and 9. He says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. And that, in a sense, I, I really think that relates to what Zach was saying earlier of the Proverbs 25 is it's a heart check of knowing the motivations of saying, God, you've said to do this. And from my own conscience is saying to me, God, I really am seeking your face. I'm pursuing your will in this. In a sense, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm abiding, if you t- to switch to a New Testament 
uh, phrase, I'm abiding in Christ. Even though David wouldn't say it like that, David is saying, I am with you, Lord. I'm seeking you. I'm making you my top priority. So teach me how to move through this circumstance and this situation. I want to look at verses 11 and 12 to look at a couple of specifics of his prayer. He says to teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I think David could have been feeling incredibly exposed in this moment. If a mom and dad can't come through for him, and David is saying, don't take this the wrong way, but all I have is the Lord. I look around me, and I cannot lean on even people, I want, to, I want to lean on perhaps circumstances or, or comfort or maybe finances could get me through a situation or maybe some kind of glimmer of hope that life isn't so uh, daunting out here. Maybe that would improve my countenance or demeanor or where I'm placing my hope. But David, I, I think he's, he's really feeling alone in this moment. And he, because of that, he reaches out to God and says, Lord, teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. I think rejection, or again, we're not quite sure what happened in verse 10 or what verse 10 reflects of his current situation, but I do think that rejection could quite honestly be the toughest trial you ever go through. Perhaps people who are supposed to support you are not only not supporting you, they're against you. Uh, We don't know if David's parents were against him, but certainly he has this relationship. If you remember, men, let me encourage you just for a quick bit of humor. If you think you have father-in-law problems, remember David's father-in-law? He was trying to kill his son-in-law, okay? He was throwing spears at him. Then he moved his army against him. Then he makes it his whole pursuit, really exposes the rest of the country to make sure he can kill this one individual who happens to be his son-in-law, David. Saul was supposed to be a protector of David, and here David is the protector in a sense of Saul. And he's rejected by him. I think he could be rejected by many around him. You see all through David's life, he's rejected and rejected and rejected. And yet, what does he do here? He still, rather than getting mad at God, rather than saying, God, you've left me hung out to dry, and I'm the only one Worshiping you here in this circumstance. He doesn't go through a list of his self-righteousness. He says, God, the God who's sovereign over this situation, he looks back to him and says, Lord, teach me, lead me, and protect me. Teach me, because I don't know which way to go. I don't know what to do. It, It... You can see David's humility here because I think when we question God, God, you fill in the blank. I think what we're doing there is we're saying, God, you have a lesson to learn. God, I'm the one that actually knows better in this circumstance and you need to learn from me. So God, you should be saying, teach me, David, or put your own name in there. That's what we do when we question God's goodness 
even in the midst of trials. But David says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lord, there's something I don't get. There's something I'm missing here. That's why he says in the second phrase, God, lead me on a level path. Why? Because of my enemies. What does that mean? Lead me on a level path because enemies are coming at me. Enemies are surrounded, surrounding me. And this is what that term means, lead me on a level path. You might think of Psalm 23 when you hear that phrase, lead me on a level ground or make straight paths before me. But here's what it means. And I think you're with me on this. When, when are you most tempted to do wrong? Don't answer out loud. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I don't know about you, but personally, I think it's when, when someone sinned against you. You're, you're going about your business, and when someone sins against you, that kind of can kickstart something in you to return evil for evil, right? You might not have done that apart from that circumstance, but once, once pressed against, the most natural thing to do in our flesh is to respond in kind. And I think David is also tempted. He's a man just like us. He's tempted to respond, and so he says, God, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. In a sense, his enemies pushing in, David is probably tempted to take shortcuts in this situation. And he's saying, God, I need you for your wisdom and your grace and your very heart so that I don't act like my enemies in getting myself out of this situation. I cannot reduce myself to that level. I I need to depend on you. They're not depending on you, but I still am called to do that. I can't take the shortcut to now depend on my own arm to bail me out is what that phrase means. To lead me on a level path. And that, that verse 12, you can just see the anger of his enemies. They breathe out violence and in a sense they exhaust violence or they snort violence like an animal is that that word there but then in verse 13 he really wraps up the psalm verse 13 and 14 give us in just an amazing conclusion verse 13 i believe i believe that i shall look upon the goodness of the lord in the land of the living wait for the lord be strong and let your heart take courage wait for the Lord. Now, if I could press a verse upon you men this morning, it's verse 14. <laughs> wait for the Lord. What is that all about? What does it mean to wait for the Lord? When we can understand sometimes what it means to, what the command means if you can think of the opposite of what it does not mean. To, to not wait for the Lord in this situation that David's in would be to to, to, to just do that, to take matters into his own hands, to perhaps seek revenge, to retaliate, to return evil for evil. But here David is choosing to wait on the Lord. And we're not sure if he's saying, hey, you wait on the Lord. We know it's in the singular here. But is, is he saying now, is he like, okay, now I'm going to preach a little sermon here at the end of this psalm. You wait for the Lord, take courage, let, you know, uh, wait for the Lord. It could be that he's speaking to us, but I think he could be bookend, bookending the psalm and talking to himself in the middle of this situation and saying, you wait for the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. 
God will act for you. Remember that. Be confident, not in yourself, not in your own strength, but in the very God who created you. He says in verse 13 that he'll, he believes. I love that phrase, I believe. David still has his belief. Not only has his belief, but it's strengthened through trial. Can you affirm that, men and women? I know we can. That the Lord has a way of strengthening us through and after a trial that we can't really explain on our, on our own. But it is true nonetheless. He still believes. And he doesn't just believe that. He doesn't say, I believe that I'll look on the goodness of the Lord in heaven, in eternity, with, with God someday in his presence. He says very specifically, I believe I'm going to look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. While I'm alive would be the modern vernacular. While I'm still breathing, I know I'm going to see God's goodness. I think that's a good reminder for us is sometimes we can get this mindset of like, yeah, I know heaven will be better than here, <laughs> which it will, right? We all know that. But do we still have hope that we will see God's grace even today or tomorrow or the next day? That God is not done with what his, his timeline is. He's not done with his timeline. He's not done with his people bringing glory to himself through the vehicle or the institution of the church currently. He's not done with that. And he believes that he'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But that last, that last phrase, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord, it probably reminds us, if, if you remember, that Joshua, Moses told Joshua to be strong and courageous. You see that uh, several times throughout the Old Testament that we are to be strong and courageous, not to just be manly, not to say that, oh, we, are, we have it in ourselves to do what God has set before us. But this waiting is to stay patient, to wait for God to act, to not lean on my own understanding, to not lean on my own resources, to, to become, in a sense, my fear, to not run and hide not to run and try to overpower or steamroll the situation, but to wait and stay there. Just a couple of points of application in, in conclusion. I want to think especially of, of men in this. Uh, of course, this applies to all of us, right? This psalm wasn't just written for men. But I think we can see that there's some, some real applications that we can... Uh, take away this morning from Psalm 27. The first is that you would just do this, that you would declare that God is with you today, that God is with you today in 2022 in Bear Valley Springs, in your circumstances, in your life, with your children, your family, your people, your job, your, whatever it is, God is with you in that. Don't leave him in Psalm 27 with David. God is with us today. God is with you in California, in America today, okay? No matter how many of your friends have moved to Idaho or Tennessee or Texas. Am I getting too close? Hey, I, I think there's a book out there that needs to be written, okay? California Christians, all right? I, I, hey, God could call me to Wisconsin tomorrow. I, I don't know. So I, we have to give room for his, his will in that. That's, that's, there's, there's nothing wrong with 
um, getting out of this land. But you've stayed. This sounds crazy. Why am I even saying this? I'm a little off script. Uh, But God has his purpose for you no matter what the news tells you, right? Whether you're watching conservative news or liberal news, God has his purpose for you today. If you're retired, God has his purpose for you. If you're not even out of the house yet, God has his purpose for you. If you're middle age, God has his purposes for you. Declare that he's with you today. Here's another application and challenge is that we would turn complaining into praise. Oh, man, is that tough. It's so easy to grind in on the problem and to figure out 50 ways that we could try to solve it or perhaps make 50 reasons why we need to run from said problem, right? But we have to turn these moments that really provide opportunities to complain. God is really saying through the prophet David here to turn complaining into praise. And I would challenge you, especially as you get older, can I say that, men? That God would sweeten your speech, that it would be seasoned uh, with salt, that it would be gracious to those who hear. I know that's a challenge for me. I think it's easier to complain as I see myself getting older because you've experienced more of life. Perhaps there's more challenges, there's more failures, there's more to look back on. You're, you're right in the middle of things. Uh, maybe it's easy to get grumpy about the way things have gone, but turn complaining into praise as we age. Number three is this, to work through your anxieties open before the Lord in full honesty. Work them out in full honesty before the Lord. If you're nervous, if you're fearful, I don't think David just shut that down and be like, I'm not fearful about that. I'm not, I'm not, that's, that's not a thing. I think that's when he was driven to go to the Lord and confess that he needs God. And he was open and honest about that. One, two more, and, and then I'm done. Review what you place your confidence in. I think ultimately, as God leads us, we do place our confidence in him more and more. But I think the challenge here is just review what maybe your reflex reach is for that circumstance or thing or maybe person to put your confidence in. Um, Review what you place your confidence in. And then the last is to do what verse 14 tells us directly, and that is to wait on the Lord. Anybody like football here? Do we have a few football fans? Come on, give me a a few more than that. Raise Hey, you guys are a little afraid of being a football fan. It's okay. Some football fans. Do we know what the pocket is, ladies? It's okay. So we're we're hitting hitting the men this morning. Man, you know what the pocket is, right? Yeah, the quarterback is supposed to stay in the pocket. I've used this phrase a lot. Uh, when, the, when the offensive line, when the ball is snapped and the, the quarterback takes the ball, more often than not, the design, if the quarterback's going to throw the ball, is to step forward into the pocket while the pocket kind of surrounds him like a bubble of safety. But sometimes what a young quarterback does is doesn't quite see it or doesn't feel quite comfortable with his offensive line, and what does he do? He slips out of the pocket, scrambles, and 75% of the time it blows up the play. Um, and, but a seasoned quarterback knows, nope, this is exactly where I need to be, is to step toward, even though it seems like that's crazy, you're going closer to the enemy, if you will, but to sit in the pocket and wait uh, that's, I think that's a good analogy, is to say, you know, let the play develop. It's not there yet. The receiver's not open. 
Okay, now, wait, wait on the Lord. Do the executed uh, things that you or do the, the, the things you're designed to do and to execute while you can and to wait for him to act in that circumstance that is clearly too big for you. And that's quite possibly why God brought it into your life so that you remember to wait on him and to really find confidence and trust in him under the increasing pressures of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you know us. You know we are weak or frail. Lord, we, we need you, even though it's Father's Day, it's a day to celebrate men. Lord, we know that to just look to ourselves is, is a very frail place to put our hope. So, Lord, I pray that you would ever increasingly um, show yourself to us so that we might be men who wait on you, put our confidence in you, uh, that we're strong and courageous not because of any kind of self-made awesomeness, Lord, but because you are a good God who protects, who saves, and who gives uh, in every situation that we encounter. Lord, I pray that you would bless these men of Bear Valley Church, strengthen them as they have a duty to their families, a duty to their neighbors, a duty to their workplace, uh, just in society in general, of where you've called them to be at this time in their life. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.